Greetings, Victory City families. So excited to have you back with us this week. One more week together to um, share in God's word, to expound on God's biblical text. I am always so excited to be able to join with you. I'm just glad that you all took time out of your Sunday to be with us this week. I am particularly excited about this sermon, as I am about every sermon every week, but this one is of particular importance for me, and I hope for you in your own life as we're going to walk through this text this week, um, the 26th Psalm, as we've been walking through the Psalms, we're getting to a point where David takes really, really strong inventory of his life. And what I hope that we see out of this sermon today, out of this biblical text, is that that is what every one of us should be doing as believers, as Christians, is that we should be taking inventory of our own lives. There is a common saying, I think we've all probably heard it, it's a very preacher saying, and it says, if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? We have discussed before when we walked through the book of James that out of the Christian life should be birthed some deeds, some works that provide the evidence to one another that that person is, in fact, walking according to the way of the Lord. Now, remember, these works are not the end-all, be-all of our relationship with God. They are not the first step, but they're the final step of evidence out of a heart that's already been changed by him. They're not where we begin, but they are where we finish. So out of a life, out of a heart that's been transformed by God, we should see works that follow that life. Listen, not any one of us is who we truly are when there are other people around. Who we are when no one else is around is very oftentimes different than who we are when there are people around. Now, even you can live with someone or be married to someone and still only get a fraction of who that person actually is. There's a saying that also says, your reputation is what people think about you, but your character is who you really are. What we desire as Christians is to not have any negligible difference between what our reputation is and what our character truly is. If possible, through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, we want those things to be symbiotic, to be the exact same. So whether I am in private or in public, The consistency of who I am is there. Now, what we learn is that when we are away from people, there are really effectively two sets of eyes that know exactly who we are. That is our own, and those are the eyes of God. What we do when we think no one else is around, no one else is paying attention, in in front of no one's eyes but God's and our own, is effectively who we are. What we do when we think we are escaping the judgment of others is what our true personality represents. That is who we are unfettered by their judgment. In the text today, we will see a man who is sure that his life is one devoted to the righteousness of God and so much so to make sure that there is no fault in him to make sure that there is no wrongdoing in him, he actually petitions the Lord to prove him and to test him. 
In this sermon today, all I want everyone to do is answer this simple question. What does your life say about you? Let's go to our text. Psalms 26. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, this is just another preachable moment, but it is a great, glorious moment for us to look within our own lives, to investigate our own hearts, bump our lives up against the word of God so that we can know, God, where we stand, who we truly are in your presence. It's not about what we think about ourselves. It's not about what others think think about us, but God is what you think about us. And so we pray that as we look in this scripture today, that you will allow us to open the chambers of our hearts and that we will let you inspect us, test us, and prove us, and prayerfully vindicate us. It is in the master's name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. David begins this text here by making a petition to God. And in making that petition to God, he says, vindicate me, O Lord, vindicate me. Now, in the original here, the word he actually is using is is judge me. But I like what the translation has done here. When he says, God, judge me, he's saying that with the anticipation that he will be vindicated. He will be justified. And so he communicates this, that he he feels God knowing the life that I've lived, that I will be vindicated. Now, there is a new day in what people call Christianity, in, in what many people describe as churches. And we see that the presentation of the gospel or righteous living is given to us like vanilla ice cream. In fact, you can probably hear on any given Sunday things like God is not judging you or God is not mad at you. God is not angry. He loves you. And yes, God does love us, but that love requires the righteous judgment of God as well. David knows this. He knows that the love of God comes with parameters for us to follow. And so when he petitions God, he petitions him knowing full well that not only would God judge his life, but that his life would be vindicated. Now, this is not coming from just a pure and innocent man, but this is coming from a man who has committed horrendous atrocities in his own life. And he is aware of the guilt of his own sins. These do not escape his reality, but 
He's also a man of repentance and a man of sanctification, which means not only has he turned away from the evil deeds of his life, but through the process of sanctification, he has become less of the man that he was and the man that God is calling him to be, which is conforming him into his very image. Now, David is facing a dilemma, and the dilemma that he is facing, we all face. And that is the dilemma between the reality of who people knew us to be and who we are now. The evidence, however, of the faithful Christian runs to the judgment of God. They don't run away from it. See, a person who is not faithful to God runs to the judgment of man, hoping that that judgment of man will vindicate them in the eyes of God. But the true faithful Christian does not run from the judgment of God. We run to it knowing that if we are living our lives the way that God has called us to live our lives, there are effectively two things that will happen. He will inspect us. We will see our lives and we will know that there are things that we need to rely on the Holy Spirit to change in us. That's one thing. But the other aspect of that is that we will also be affirmed that if we were in a relationship with God yesterday, we are still in that relationship today. It is an unbreakable bond that we have with God that can never end. And so that is the joy is, yes, I have to take inventory of my life because I don't want to be more like me. I want to be more like him. But even when I find things in my life that God reveals to me through his word, I don't have to be broken down or beaten up by it because I know that I'm still in relationship with him. Now, you have probably heard people say this and and I've heard people say it quite often is, The Lord knows my heart. Now, you never hear a person say the Lord knows my heart after they do something good. Anytime somebody says, oh, well, the Lord knows my heart. They're saying that because they're doing something that they think is out of character for them. And so they think that by saying the Lord knows my heart is freeing them from the judgment of God. But it isn't. It's actually bringing even more condemnation. Yes, the Lord does know your heart. The Lord absolutely knows when we are doing things that align with the true definition of what our heart actually is. That's why further on we see later in the Psalms, David actually says, search me, O God. Search me. Search my heart. Let me know where I stand with you. Let me take inventory. God, just take inventory of my life so that I can know where we are in our relationship. See, for us to say the Lord knows our hearts means that, yes, God knows that even in the times where we try to do good things, if those good things are divorced from a good heart, those good things are not really good at all. See, the thing is, is that the person who welcomes God's judgment is seeking to be corrected, chastised and vindicated all at the same time. You will not be vindicated without being chastised. You will not be vindicated without having been corrected. It all happens in the life of the believer. This is why we are not only saved 
We are saved from the penalty of our sin, but we are being saved from the presence of sin. Not one of us can say that we are sin free, but we are becoming less sinful. That is the progressive life of any Christian. That is why we work out our salvation with fear and with trembling so that through the work of the Holy Spirit, we are becoming progressively more like Jesus Christ and less like ourselves. Now, that will not happen if we do not invoke the presence of God to take inventory of who we are. If any time we rest on our laurels and get comfortable in being who we are, then the question is, were we ever a Christian to begin with? Listen, we have just been going through the process of selling our home and buying another home. And there is one thing that freaks any home seller out more than anything. And that is the inspection. That is the inspection There is a great nervousness and anticipation and anxiousness when you know your home is getting inspected. Why? Because they're coming to find something wrong. They don't come to report everything that's doing well. They do report that. But they're also there to find things that are wrong. Now, if you're a good homeowner, you're preparing for this. And so you try to fix things before the inspector comes. Now, you don't expect a perfect inspection, but if there is something major that would deter a buyer, you go ahead and you want to get that taken care of. If you're a shoddy homeowner, you try to make everything look like it's good and you try to mask it and put band-aids over it. But a good inspector will always know when someone has done a shoddy job. They will always know that. Now, in our lives, God is the inspector. And while there is an anxiousness and a nervousness about it, even when you're selling the home, the one thing you do know is that when that inspector comes, they're going to let you know everything that's wrong with the house. So then you have an opportunity to fix everything as well. That is what happens when we welcome the inspection of God into our hearts. When we look at the word and we ask God, vindicate me, judge me, God. Open me up. Let me know. I expect you to find some things that are wrong, but I want to be able to fix them. I want to rely on the Holy Spirit to progressively make me less like the person I was and more like you. Unless I welcome God, the great inspector of our hearts, in and let him judge me, let him let him look at my life and look at my heart, then there's no way I'll ever know what's actually wrong. See, it is very uncomfortable for us as believers to go through this proving process, but it is also absolutely necessary. Listen, if the Lord judged your life right now, you just I'm talking to you, not talking to the person next to you, not talking to anybody else you may be watching this with. But you personally, if the Lord judged your life right now. Would you be vindicated or would you be condemned? Would you be castigated to an eternal damnation or would you be welcomed into the presence of God? What does your life say about you? I'm not talking about what you pose for others to see or what you display for others to see. I'm talking about 
when no one else is around. What do your thoughts say about your life? What do your actions say about your life? What does your heart say about your life? What does your life say about you? Can we say like David says here, you can judge me, O Lord, because I have walked in integrity and I've trusted you. What does your life say about you? What does it reveal about who you are? Next, after David petitions the Lord to judge his life, he then petitions him to prove him, to prove him. Now, every one of us knows what it means to prove something. In order to prove it, you have to test it. You have to try it to make sure that it can perform up to the necessary ability that you have of it. You have an expectation for it. And so you prove it, you try it and you test it so that you can see that it actually can do what you need it to do. You have to put it up against something in order to see how it performs. David is so desperate to know his standing with God that he welcomes any test that God will bring so that he can be proven, so that he can be vindicated. I've often heard people say this, and it actually aggravates me when they say it. They say, don't ever pray for patience because the Lord's going to send something so that your patience will be tried. Well, if I need more patience, how do I expect to get it? It is through that testing and trying process. But understand this. When we are tested, when we are tried, when we are being proven, we are not revealing anything to God that God doesn't know about us. We are revealing to ourselves what we thought we knew about us. See, it is not until you go through a difficult time or a challenge or a test that you start to realize, oh, maybe I'm not as far along with that thing as I thought I was. Maybe that's not as far in my past as I thought it was. Maybe I haven't forgotten about that situation like I thought I had forgotten about it. Maybe these things are more fresh in my mind than I wanted to believe. And if it hadn't been for that test, I would have a false idea of where I actually am in my life life. Now, when this happens, I'll be the first to admit it is sobering. It is a sobering thing when you thought that you were somewhere further in your life and then something happens and you realize I'm not as far as I thought I was. But it makes you be even more dependent on God. It's convicting. It's revealing But if the ultimate goal of any test and any trial is to conform us into the image of God without the test and the trial, we wouldn't know how far away from that image we truly were. Our sanctification, as I mentioned earlier, we have we are saved, but we're being saved. Our sanctification is not just a thing of the past, but it is an ongoing and constant process as long as we live. So if that is the case, if that is the ongoing process of our sanctification in our lives, can you unequivocally say that you are more like Christ now than when you first believed? Can you say that with the utmost conviction is that I am less like Brandon than when I first believed and I'm more like him? 
Is there marked growth in your life? Have you seen a, a punctuation in your life where you can say, this was a turning point. This is who I was, but because of the grace of God, this is now who I am. Or has nothing changed at all? Salvation, just so I'm clear, salvation is not a prayer that is prayed, but it is a life saved by Jesus Christ that displays a fruit or a life changed by him. Many times in what calls itself Christianity today, people do not want to be held accountable for the lives that they live. They want to be held accountable according to an aisle they walk down or according to a prayer they prayed or repeating what the pastor said that Sunday. But we must hold ourselves accountable according to the lives that we live. So how does David suggest the Lord do that? He says, by testing and proving his heart and his mind. Now, I want to see if you notice this seemingly dichotomous statement here. He wants his life judged and he wants his actions evaluated, but he knows that the only way that that can effectively happen is if his heart and mind are evaluated. Listen, you remember, we talked about it last week. He says, in order to see God, you must have clean hands and a pure heart. The hands can only be clean if the heart is first pure. And so he says, God, I know I may have deeds. I know I may have actions that look good in the eyes of men. But the only way those actions are really good or are really righteous is that my heart is righteous. So, God, don't just look at what I do. Look at my motives behind why I do what I do. See, there are all these different types of people who think that if they give all they give away or do all these things for different people, that they are escaping the judgment of God. But unless those things come from a heart that has been changed by God, they're not good at all. It's tinkling brass. That's what Paul says. He said it's just a symbol. Because if you do not truly have love, if love is not the motivating factor in what you do, your deeds mean nothing. Or as James said it, your works are dead, as is your faith. We have to ask God whenever we do anything, God, evaluate my heart. Let me know that I'm really doing this for you. God, let me know that I'm not just putting on a show so people can think that I'm righteous. Let me make sure that what I'm doing is not being done in vain. God, I need to be right with you. Because if we are not right with God, it doesn't matter who else we're right with. It doesn't matter who else approves of what we do. We must be right with God. And so we must ask him, search the depths of our lives and our hearts and our motives so that they are right. Listen. It does not matter how many services you attend. It does not matter how many songs you sing. It doesn't matter how many instruments you play. It does not matter how many sermons you preach. If you do not have a heart that has been transformed by God, those deeds are dead. And they mean nothing. 
If the quantity of your service does not match the quality of your heart, then all of our actions are dead works. Now, how does David says that he stays, he stays true? And this is, this is important. He says that the steadfast love of God is always before his eyes. Now, that, that may not mean nearly as much as it means to you, but it almost makes me well up in tears because David knew his life. David knew that he was a product of God's unending grace, mercy, and his tremendous love. And the only way that he had gotten through all of his own sin is that God loved him through every bad decision he made. He says, so what keeps me true to God is that I focus on that love. If you're like me, your life has been riddled with horrendous, sinful acts and words and things that you have done and said that you pray no one ever finds out. And you realize that I am who I am only by the grace of God. And that there are people who, as long as they keep their mouth shut, I'll be fine. That is the love of God that he allowed us to walk through all of our sin and get through all of our sin. He held us through his grace. He preserved us. And now the way that we honor him is we never forget that love. Why do you think Jesus was so angry at hypocrites whenever they would have all these lofty laws over everybody else but didn't have it in their hearts? He called them whitewashed tombs. He said, your lips praise me, but your hearts are far from me. The reason they angered him so much is because there had been such a great deal of love that was extended to them and that would be extended to them through him. That's why the self-righteous will not stand in the day of judgment because none of us have any righteousness on our own. We are all products of the love and the grace and the mercy of God. How dare anybody judge anybody else unfairly when God didn't judge us when we were in our sins? We must look at our lives and examine ourselves and see that it is the full product of God's love and grace and that we deserve that no more than anybody else did. Listen, you remember, we talked about the blessed life, okay? When we talked about that, David said that there are things that the blessed person just doesn't do. Here he reiterates that there are just things that should not be found in his life. In short, he says that he has no fellowship with the wicked. He knows full well that there is certain company. Please hear this. There is certain company that a true believer cannot keep. That has been controversial lately for people. But let's be true. No one wants to be associated with the things they do or the way they look or the people they surround themselves with. But these all factor in the perception we give off. 
In this new millennial society, and I'm a millennial, but in this new millennial society and generation that we live in, people think that we can't properly assess anybody's life based on the evidence that we have. And if you do, they call it judgment. But let me tell you why it's not. If I'm walking down the street and I'm in a police uniform and I'm walking with other police officers, and I do all the things police officers do, and I talk the jargon, I speak the jargon, it is a normal assessment, even if you do it unconsciously, to think, oh, he must be a police officer. He's wearing the clothes, he's walking the walk, he's talking the talk, he's doing what they do, he must be what they are as well. That is not unrighteous judgment. That is me making an assessment based off of what I see. Now, if I were to judge somebody improperly merely based off of their race or their gender or this or that, that's wrong. But if I'm just making a normal assessment of a person, I'm assessing them based off what they're presenting. But now in our generation, they don't want us to make any assessments on anybody's life. You have to wait until somebody tells you everything about them before you can even make any conclusion about them. But the reality is, whether we want to accept it or not, what we put off to people, the perception we give off to people, absolutely causes people to make assessments of us. And we can't be mad at them for making those assessments. Listen, if I'm not an alcoholic, I shouldn't spend time around alcoholics. And then say, I'm witnessing to alcoholics. See, I can witness to them, but I don't need to go to the bar to do it. I don't need to go to the place that enables their sin. I need to take them out of the place that enables them, them their sin and then witness to them. But see, there is this mingling, this uncomfortable mingling between the church and the world where the lines have constantly gotten blurred on where the church ends and the world begins. When this happens, when you see even in your own life that the lines are getting blurred, that doesn't mean that you have forsaken your salvation. That's impossible. But what you need to do in those times is say, God, take inventory. Things are getting a little muddy here. Take inventory. What is my life saying about me right now? What did that post say about me? What did those words say about me? What did those actions say about me? I was harsh when I did that. What did that say about me? What did what I do? What did that say about the life that I live? Listen, can people tell that there is a difference in your life when you tell them that you're a Christian or are they shocked? When you reveal that you're a Christian to people, do they look bamboozled by the fact? Listen, as Christians, and I'm not saying we need to be extra and go out of the way that, well, I'm a Christian and have a Christian shirt that reminds people that, no. But it's the love of God that should exude out of us and out of our actions and out of our words that people, whether they can tell that we're a Christian, when we tell them that we are, say, I knew there was something different about you. Does the life that you're leading tell a consistent narrative of what God is doing in your life? Is it telling the truth about your relationship? What does your life say about you? 
David says that in contrast to surrounding his life with the wicked, he finds himself publicly declaring the goodness of God. He says that he proclaims the Lord's goodness and his deeds, and he proclaims them out loud. When a person can proclaim the goodness of God out loud, they want to do that with the utmost concern that their life will not be put to shame. When you know that you can praise God and that there is no sin inhibiting you from doing so, there is such a joy and a freedom in your life. True, real, acceptable praise to God can only come from a life devoted to God. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus warned the hypocrites that while their lips spoke his praises, it was their hearts It was their hearts that were far from him. I guess if there is one thing I want everyone to get out of this sermon today, it is that you do not be deceived by the condition of your own heart. Because it is your heart that will deceive you first. Look at what Jeremiah 17 and 9 says. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And then I like how he asks this question. Who can know it? Who can know the heart? We will never adequately on our own know the true condition of our hearts unless Jesus has gotten a hold to it. But every one of us must have a heart transplant. More than that, however, even when we are changed and our hearts are transformed, we must constantly call the inspector of our souls and allow him to examine us. From the foundation on up, we need God to look at us and to examine us and to test us and to try us and to prove us. Now, you say, how do we do that? What is the source? How do we examine our lives? How do we get any clarity on where we stand with God? I can tell you. We get clarity on where we stand with God when we go to the word of God. The Bible says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces the soul and the spirit. It pierces them. It pierces the soul. It pierces the spirit. But then listen to this. It judges. It judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. If you want to know how to perform a great inspection or a great evaluation of your life, there's nothing more effective than comparing your life against the word of God. Listen, the sermon is titled, What Does Your Life Say About You? But there's an additive here. What are you trying to hide in your heart? What mask have you created in the public that is disguising who you really are? Let me give you some advice. Simple. Just let the Lord in. Just let him check you out, inspect you, and clean you. As the Bible says in Ezekiel, he will give us new hearts and he will sprinkle us clean. 
We just have to trust his process. He can do better with our hearts and with our lives than we can. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you now for this tremendous word. It is sobering. It is convicting, but it is also encouraging, God, because we want to be inspected. We want to be tried. We want to be examined. We want to be proven. We want to be judged so that we will be vindicated. We want our lives to be true reflections of the grace of God in our lives. So we pray, Lord, that you will examine us, look at us, try us, and make a determination on who we are in you. God, if there's anybody who doesn't know you, who hasn't had that great evaluation performed on their lives, God, let this be the day that they are introduced to you. It is in Jesus' name we pray.